If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Psalm 115. 115, the, the text is also printed in the bulletin. And if you prefer a, an actual Bible and you didn't bring one, there are a few, I think, on the table in the back of the sanctuary. We'll look at Psalm 115 this morning. The first verse of this psalm um, that we'll read in just a minute, <clears throat> the first verse is, is really uh, what the whole thing is about. It may be a familiar verse to you. You've, you've maybe heard a song uh, sung about this verse before or uh, seen it used in uh, history or in Shakespeare. Um, <clears throat> but here are, here are the words of this first verse. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. That's what the whole psalm is about. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. That's a profound thing to pray. It's a very profound thing to pray. Um, Jesus picks up this theme in what we call the Lord's Prayer, which we prayed earlier in our service. When our mediator, Jesus, teaches us how to pray and he invites us to join him in his own prayer, the first thing he teaches us to ask, the foundational thing that he teaches us to ask, which really defines all the other petitions of the Lord's Prayer that follow afterwards, is our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the same request as what we find in Psalm 115, verse 1. God's name, which we're praying to be hallowed, uh, that God would give glory to, that Jesus teaches us to pray, that Jesus exemplifies that prayer on our behalf, uh, to pray for God's name to be glorified. God's name is like his reputation. You give somebody your name so that you can be known by them, so that you can be addressed, so that you can have a relationship with them, right? So uh, his name is like is what he reveals about himself so that we can know him as he really is and have a relationship with him as he truly is. So the one who prays this way is asking Yahweh, that's actually his, his personal name by which he has... Uh, disclosed his, uh, his reputation, his character, his true self, Yahweh, uh, especially finding that in, uh, throughout the Old Testament. Um, it's what you find in your Bible when you see it, when you see the word Lord printed in all caps, that's sort of hiding the word Yahweh behind it, which is his personal name. So the one who's asking um, <clears throat> Yahweh to introduce himself uh, is, is asking God to, to do something that, um, he, that only he can do. To, to make himself known to us and to other people to evoke our trust in him, to evoke our sacred fear of him, to evoke, evoke uh, our delight in him and our wondrous praise of him. God's the only one who can make himself known in such a way that his name is glorified. <clears throat> it's a prayer that, uh, that Yahweh would demonstrate such a contrast between himself as the one true God the living God, and false gods, on the other hand, and idols of our imaginations, that he would demonstrate such a contrast between those things that we would be awakened to a relationship with him. It's a prayer for a saving knowledge of God that would cause us to revere him and to, to esteem his reputation above our own. And it's a prayer, and God has to make it happen, if it's going to happen, in response to our asking for it to happen, God is the one who has to act, because human beings resist knowing him by nature. By, by our sinful nature, we resist knowing him, we don't trust him, we don't fear him, we don't delight in him, we don't praise him. 
So we ask for him to make those changes in our own hearts and in the hearts of other people when we ask him to, to give glory to his name. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, let me pray, then we'll read Psalm 115. Father, we want to have a relationship with you that, um, that we can be confident about because we can say that we do know you as you truly are. And you've revealed yourself clearly in the scriptures, and yet our hearts uh, still resist true knowledge of you. We pray that you would crack open our hearts, that you would renew them, that you would give us new and living hearts in place of the old dead hard ones so that we can know you as you've made yourself known, so that we can glorify your name in all that we believe, in all that we think, in all that we feel, in all that we do. We pray that you would glorify your name in us now as we consider your word. We pray for that, uh, your Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' name. Amen. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. But the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is one of the first things that uh, children learn about God. I know we've had this conversation around our household, uh, around the dinner table a lot of times. It's one of the first questions in the catechism, in the children's catechism. It's number 11. And so uh, it's pretty important, pretty commonly asked, can you see God? It's children. Somebody whispered it. Can you see God? No. No, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. I cannot see God. But he always sees me. So God is invisible to me right now. But he is real. And he is personal. He sees me. He's watchful. He's lovingly attentive. He's concerned for me. Right? The invisibility part is really difficult for people. 
Can I see God? No. That seems kind of like the main point of that question. Can I see God? No. I can't. Too bad for me, I guess. It's really difficult for people. It's something that people have always demanded an explanation for. Where is your God? In ancient Rome, uh, the context in which the church went forth in in its mission after the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in ancient Rome, which was filled with images and icons and statues of gods in their temples everywhere, Christians were called atheists. Christians were called atheists because they didn't worship something visible, something that had a spatial location that you could point to, that you could go to and bow before. Christians were called atheists because they didn't have gods in the conventional sense of that term. And this was something uh, that Yahweh's people had, had to explain for centuries before that time, before the Christians going forth in Rome were called atheists, um, God's people, Yahweh's people, Israel, had had to explain this. <clears throat> and so Yahweh's people have often found themselves in conflict with people of other religions who mock and ridicule and taunt them about the invisible nature of God. They think our God is not real because you can't see him. That's, that's a real thing. People think our God is not real because you can't see him. They think the visibility of their gods, on the other hand, proves their reality. Right? In fact, even Yahweh's people have been tempted uh, over the centuries to adopt for themselves more visible gods, more visible representations of God or uh, idols or icons like the rest of the world worships. Something that has a spatial location that you can go to and bow down before. <clears throat> Even always people have been tempted to do that. In the past, um, largely, we would have been talking about literal statues of gods. I mean, I think that's kind of what this passage is talking about. Literal little figurines, maybe, that you have in your household. Or statues that you go to the temple to worship. Now, on the other hand, generally speaking, idolaters haven't carved gods out of wood or stone or haven't uh, fashioned them out of metal, precious metals. Right? They haven't given them personal names, maybe, like Molech or Baal or Athena. And they might not pray to them conversationally. Right? Modern idolaters might not pray like we usually think of prayer. But modern idolaters still insist that only what you see is real. Your God's not real because he's invisible. Here are the real things of this world that we can give our lives to, that we can devote ourselves to, that we can serve. Their gods are still things of this created world, maybe not wood or stone or precious metals, still things of this created world, things that are visible, things that are tangible, things that are quantifiable, that they have chosen to glorify as gods, chosen to put in the place of God as far as they understand that, have a relationship with as God as far as they understand that, even if they would never call them gods. We never call these things gods. <clears throat> Tim Keller has a great book. It's called Counterfeit Gods. It's about this. He says that the human heart takes good things, good created, physical, 
tangible, quantifiable things, things that are part of this world. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. They have something that we desperately need. We're needy and we're hungry for it. And these things can give it to us. And so he, uh, he goes on, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite. If all of you are familiar with Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. But many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. That's the same thing. That's the same kind of idolatry. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. These kind of idols are everywhere. And they come from our hearts. And they're everywhere in society. They don't have temples that people would recognize as religious temples. They don't have little figurines that people would say are gods. But even those who self-identify as atheists, no gods. No gods, thank you. Even those who self-identify as atheists worship gods like these. They just wouldn't recognize that for what it is. They just wouldn't call it as such. Human beings are worshipers. You can't escape it. That's who we are. We're worshipers. So no one really gets rid of their gods, even if we say, no gods. No gods, thank you. Atheists are really just reacting against the idea of an invisible god, ultimately. Uh, And that's what you hear in conversation with them, frequently. They're reacting particularly against what they understand about our invisible god. And modern idolaters, they mock and they ridicule and they taunt God's people in pretty much the same way that the old idolaters did. For hundreds of years, for millennia, the same thing's been happening. They laugh. They've laughed at me. I used to be one of them who laughed at Christians. And now they've laughed at me and they say, where? Where's your God? And they imply with such a question, you're stupid for believing in an invisible deity. That's stupid. That's wrong. That's not real. You know what's real? You know what's real, they say. These gods that we have created. These gods that we have imbued with divine power. These gods that we fawn over, that we serve, that we worship, hoping to get life and blessing out of them. These are the real gods. This is what's real. These things that are physical and um, tangible, quantifiable. These things of the world that we've turned into gods, these are real. Idolatrous human beings, they make up gods in their own broken image. That's all that we can do is make up, according to our imagination, uh, what we would be like if we were just bigger and better and stronger. If we were infinite. And that means the gods that are made up by idolatrous human beings, made up in their own image, 
are insatiably hungry gods. And they're fickle gods, and they're ill-tempered gods, and they're actually impotent gods. They're unable to manage the world. They're unable to... And, and they insist that these are the real gods with real power. Their gods are as dead as doornails. Talk about ridiculous. This psalm ter- turns the joke around on those who worship false gods. In verse 4 it says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. The work of human hands. Silver and gold are nice things you might find lying around in the dirt or dig out of the rocks, but people made idols up out of their own imaginations. Therefore, logically speaking, these things would be less than we are. And if you worship anything other than the one true God, you're worshiping something that's less than you are. But we bow before them as if they were great divine beings. Verses 5 through 7, all those, uh, those descriptions there, you can see that idols, they have dead representations of our senses, dead representations of our abilities. The abilities and the senses that humans possess, these idols have like a picture of that, but they're dead. They don't work. They can't even interact with the world, let alone influence the world in order to bless those who worship them. And Isaiah, in his prophecy, unmasks idolatry in a similar way. It's it's maybe kind of scathing, and it's maybe kind of sad. I'm not sure how to to take it. Probably with some sadness, Jesus would take it. Isaiah 44, he's talking about an idolater. He says, he takes a part of a block of wood, a part of it, and he he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. No one considers, Isaiah says. Nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? No one even asks that question. Those who make idols, the old kind or the new kind, those who trust idols become like them, it says in verse 8 of Psalm 115. Those who make idols become like them. If you make a dead god, If you trust a dead God, if you worship a dead God, you become dead like that dead God. Even though you have mouths and eyes and ears and noses, hands and feet, they're not animated by true spiritual life anymore. Idolaters are dead inside. They're dead spiritually. They're dead to reality. They're dead to the one true God. That's what really matters. And that's the natural state from which sinners actually need to be delivered. We can't fix that problem on our own. We've got to pray for deliverance. Glorify your name, Lord. Save us in spite of ourselves. Save us for the sake, not of who we are, idolaters. Save us for the sake of who you are because you're the one who loves with steadfast love because you're the faithful one. Save us. 
Yahweh is the, the true God, and with him everything is different. It's so different from the idols that are being described here and the idolatry of the human heart that's being described here. Because we didn't make him. He's not just a figment of our imaginations. We can hardly even conceive of him when he makes himself known to us, when he, even when he comes in human form and speaks to us with our languages. We can hardly conceive of what he's really like. We sure didn't make him up out of our imagination, this God. Not the triune God. Nobody made him up. Yahweh is no dead representation of our imaginations. He's the living God. That's how the scriptures describe him. He's the living God, and it is he who made us and all things. The real God who lives forever is the creator. He's the creator. The triune God is the only God who actually could create and who actually would create. All the false gods that have ever come from our imaginations, from the imaginations of sinners, of all the religions, old gods, new gods, older or modern idols, all of them have been too self-absorbed in their essence for it to be believable that they would have created anything good, any kind of world that we'd want to be a part of. We can only imagine God's being like ourselves, big beefy versions of ourselves, right? We can only imagine them having needs like we do. And the only reason that such gods that spring forth from our own imaginations and our own hearts and uh, roll off the assembly line of our um, idolatry factories, the way John Calvin puts it, the only reason such gods would create anything would be if they were needy and they were hungry to get something that they didn't already have. But Yahweh, the triune God, who has been from all eternity, Father overflowing in love to the Son in the person of the Holy Spirit, only for this God is creation not fulfilling some needy part of himself. Only for this God is creation not a hungry being looking to fill himself and get something that he doesn't already have. Only for the triune God. Only for the Trinity is a good creation perfectly consistent with the loving goodness of his being. Really. So Michael Reeves, he talks about this in a book called Delighting in the Trinity, which uh, you really should read if you haven't already and maybe read again if you have. And we have a couple copies on the book table in in the entryway. Delighting in the Trinity by Mike Reeves says this, and he says it way better than I do uh, and expands on this argument here, but he says the very nature of the triune God is to be effusive, ebullient, and bountiful. The Father rejoices to have another beside him. Talking about the Son from all eternity before he created anything else. The Father rejoices to have another beside him, and he finds his very self in pouring out his love. Creation is about the spreading, the diffusion, the outward explosion of that love. This God is the very opposite of greedy, hungry, selfish emptiness. In his self-giving, he naturally pours forth life and goodness. He is then the source of all that is good. He, um, he didn't create in order to get. 
He created in order to give and to bless. And he didn't need to do it. Creation is, is superfluous and unnecessary. And that absolutely delights him. He's thrilled by it. He says it's very good. Our God, it says in verse 3 of our psalm, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. There's no constraints. He's never compelled. He's got no need. He does all that he pleases. False gods are dependent on our imaginations for their very existence. Yahweh is utterly independent of us. We are dependent on him for our existence. He's the living God who is almighty in his in his absolute perfect freedom to do whatever he wants. He does all that he pleases. And what has he done? What has he done in his absolute freedom to do all that he pleases? To do whatever delights him. What has he done? He made the world. He made you and me in his image. And he gave us the world. It says in our psalm, verse 16, he gave us the whole world. We make dead idols in the hopes that if we find the right way to please them, they might give us something good in this world. But Yahweh made us out of his superabundant love, and he's already given the world to us in his boundless generosity. It happened in the first chapter of the Bible. It isn't because we bought his affection or we found the right lever to pull and we pulled it. We figured out how to manipulate him in prayer. He has always done all that he pleases. And so Robert Capon says in his great little book, uh, The Supper of the Lamb, it's a cookbook, you should get it. <clears throat> he says, uh, prosit, which maybe we hear prost more, uh, right? Cheers. Prosit, dear hearts. Cheers, men and brethren. We are free. Nothing is needful. Everything is for joy. It was largesse that made us all. The unnecessary is the taproot of our being and the last key to the door of delight. And so in uh, verses 14 and 15 of our psalm, they, they echo the creation of humanity that we find in Genesis chapter 1. That, that first chapter in the Bible, may the Lord give you increase. Be fruitful and multiply, right? May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. It's the first thing that he did after he made humans in his image is bless them. Idolaters make dead, sterile gods in their own images. The living God who made heaven and earth, he made us in his image to be living, to be alive, fruitful, and creative, and life-giving. And he blessed us and he told us to multiply and increase and overflow into the world like his love overflows into the creation of the world. He doesn't bless us because we are great. He doesn't bless us because we found the right way to, gra uh, to ask. He doesn't bless us because we fawned and groveled appropriately and served him and bled for him and sacrificed for him. He doesn't bless us because of those things. He's the source of all of our life. And his first word toward humanity before we even opened our mouths, his first word was blessing. And his word continues 
to be blessing, even though we've all been idolaters and rejected the true knowledge of him and replaced him in our hearts with false gods that are no gods. His word continues to be blessing. His word toward those who are dead in their idolatry is Jesus. And it brings them back to life out of their idolatry. Jesus is God's son coming to the world not to be served, which is what you'd imagine with all the gods that we create out of our own imaginations, that we've just got to serve them. Jesus came into the world, the son of God came into the world not to be served, but to serve, to bleed for us, to bless us with his sacrifice, to make us alive again in his own resurrection, to new life, to everlasting life. Jesus is the only one, the only human being who never bowed to false gods. Jesus is the only one who truly prays this prayer to his Father, hallowed be your name, or to your name give glory. Jesus is the only one whose whole life was devoted to the glory of the one true living God. And, you know, we can read a psalm like this. We can read Isaiah's um, treatment of idolaters. We can laugh and make fun of the stupidity, pretty obvious stupidity of idolatry, only if we're laughing at ourselves. Because Jesus is the only one who had the right to come and laugh at us and to judge us for idolatry. But he came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. Jesus is the only one who can make idolaters alive again in God's image, reform us and renew us in God's image. He's the only one who can reveal God's name to us and awaken us to a real relationship with him. He's the only one who can bring us a saving knowledge of God that causes us to glorify God and to trust in him and to fear him with a sacred fear and delight in him and praise him. Jesus is the only one who can make these things happen. So we summarize in uh, verses 9 through 13. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He'll bless you. He'll bless you. He'll bless you. He'll bless you. Both the small and the great. doesn't matter who you are. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when God made his name known to us for our relationship with him, we can confidently say that those who trust him, those who trust the, the living and true God, will become like him. Will become like him. And will have a life like his Forever, says in our psalm, verses 17 and 18, the dead do not praise the Lord, neither do those who go down in silence. This is sort of reminiscing about the, the idols that are dead and silent. And the people who become like them, idolaters, they don't praise the Lord. But we, it says, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. We'll live with him, with his own life in us. So make no mistake, you can't see him. Not yet. But Yahweh is the one true living God. He's invisible, but he is real. And there is no other God. He is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And what he pleases to do is make himself known to you. That's what he's done. For the sake of his steadfast love and his faithfulness, because that's who he is. 
because he is effusive and ebullient and bountiful and superabundant in gracious love, he has made himself visible in time and space. He's made himself visible in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, in order to establish a new relationship with you, even though you X'd him out of your life, created alternative gods to trust and worship and serve. So you should put those silly things down, all of them, whenever you find one in your life. Just put it down, just drop it, and trust in the Lord, and you will live forever. With his own life in you, the true and living God has loved you. The true and living God has blessed you freely because he's done everything that he's pleased to do. Become alive like he is alive and love and bless freely. Yahweh has sheer gratuitous enthusiasm for life that simply bursts forth from him into the creation of the world. Become like him in your fruitfulness in your creativity. Make a mockery of your old dead gods right in the face of a world that's rampant with idolatry as you trust the invisible God with a heart that's made full and happy by His Holy Spirit as you delight in Him because He's given you the world. He's given it to you. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Hallowed be your name. We don't deserve glory, not in any sense. And yet you have given us everything. You've given us the world. You've given us your Son. And in Him, you've actually shared your own glory with us. You've made us like yourself. You've made us to live forever with you. You've made our eternal destiny one of love and true fellowship, communion, and joy with you. You've made us alive forevermore. And we will praise you forevermore. We pray that you would awaken all dead hearts to this life with you that's freely offered in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.